You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus.
To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass. That Christ, that the Christ, must suffer. And that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has been done not in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, In short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So concludes our reading, and so concludes Paul's defense before Agrippa and Festus. We've been talking for a little bit how being okay in the gospel, having our lives set right by pure justification on account of Christ, how being okay actually allows you to be not okay. That when life comes and when trials happen and when you find yourself in a spot that you wouldn't prefer or when it feels like God is kind of jostling up your life, maybe even shaking up your ministry, that those things aren't really um, side missions to the great mission. Oftentimes that is part of the mission and it's okay to not actually be okay. The gospel and all of its wonderful gifts, as we sang in Come Thou Found, full of every blessing and every salvific blessing, allows you to be okay even when your life circumstances aren't bad. And there's no clearer picture than when Paul is literally, in one sense, pursuing life in prison so that he can continue to share the gospel. Paul didn't see uh, house imprisonment and ongoing false accusations as a side hustle to his great mission, those things in one sense became the mission. As his life continued to be not okay, it pushed him back into the realities of the gospel, which actually made him okay. Being under house arrest, Paul actually was very encouraged because it was there that he understood the gospel in clearer ways and that his life was okay. So because of that, he got the opportunity to really seize the moment to try to go to Rome. If you remember, that's his ultimate goal, that's his ultimate destination. But he looked at really this imprisonment and his own uh, Roman citizenship as a way to, to eventually get there, kind of through the judicial system. So eventually I'll work my way there and I want to appeal to Caesar. Why? Because Paul wanted to get to Rome to preach the gospel. But all along the way, Paul leveraged his not okayness in his life to pronounce the okayness of the gospel. 
And people had a very hard time because they were so given to their own political idolatry or they were so concerned with the not okayness that surrounded them, they had a hard time giving up for the sake of the gospel. And this is Paul's dream. Paul's dream, as he says at the very end, I wish that you all would be like me. Not me, but I wish you would all realize that it's okay to not be okay. Why? Because the gospel makes you okay. Now he does throw in that little bit, you know, I mean, this being in prison stuff is not all that great, but beyond that, I wish you were all like me. It's fantastic to have been killed and raised to life again when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were walking in the way, when you were headed on your path, and when Jesus shows up. It's wonderful. It's wonderful that Paul experienced that miracle. We, we were talking about that, and uh, really, I mentioned that really this could be two, uh, th this two-part series here could actually be one giant sermon. We didn't have time to take it all apart this uh, last week, so we're going to do the second part this week. Uh, but we're still, the big idea for chapter 26 is that the gospel brings full salvation. And we're going to look into a particular aspect of that big idea. So that's kind of overarching idea for all of chapter 26. Uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at the spiritual realities of the gospel that brings salvation. And this week, we're going to look at the historical realities of the gospel that bring full salvation. Okay? There's actually bits and pieces of the gospel story that intersect with actual history, with actual space and time. And they're really important, and Paul draws these out as actual Proofs of the realities of what God is doing in our hearts. And Paul brings this up, first of all, as a defense. Remember, Paul was literally on trial, so what he's saying is actually a defense. He's, he has to make sense of it all. He has to present a good defense in order to really save his hide. But more than that, Paul is leveraging his defense to bring to, re, to the reality, or, or bring to the forefront the realities of the gospel. That's what he wants. So you can even hear in our reading, Paul is really imploring King Agrippa, really in one sense trying to trap King Agrippa into this reality. You have to believe this gospel. You must trust this reality. You can't unsee this reality. So tonight, we're going to do that. Part two, the historical realities of the gospel. It's amazing. Paul, uh, in verse 19, he kind of adds to his defense that we just talked about what it means that salvation is this wonderful gift that offers to us the illumination, the ability to see things clearly. And then it grants to us this wonderful repentance, this wonderful gift of being able to finally and uh, for the first time turn away from your sin and then behold Jesus and behold God as he is and then turn to him and trust all that he gives to us. The word creates that. And it's amazing, in verse 19, he goes on to describe, therefore, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to that heavenly vision. I, I obeyed, I took for reality what I saw with my own two eyes. I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus, first of all, in his glory. Jesus with a glorified body. Remember uh, earlier in the passage, he describes in his conversion that the sun that he saw was in, insanely bright, and it blinded him. One sense, it took away his sight, but for the first time, he was able to spiritually see Jesus as he is, in his glory. 
You can only imagine, though, as well, though he saw Jesus in his glory, Paul probably couldn't take his eyes off of the wounds that were present there as well. It's true. He was crucified, but yet he's alive again. His salvation worked. What he had always taught about the nature of, first of all, his ability to beat death, but also his ability to take away sins is plain in front of my eyes, and I can't see that. It's both the very thing that caused him to repent away from his sin. He probably saw the glory of Jesus in a way that actually diagnosed and undid his own heart. Probably set him really in a fearful state. If this is the judge of the universe and he's back alive and he truly has power over death and, uh, and sin, then I'm in trouble. And it rendered him blind and probably sparked a large dose of fear, as you would imagine it would do to any of us. But also seeing Jesus in his glorified body, but also seeing his wounds, he couldn't under—he couldn't undersee the salvation that Jesus promised as well. He couldn't see—he uh, couldn't unsee the kindness of God that, in one sense, allowed the God of the universe to take on human flesh and bear wounds for the sake of the sinful world. And in a moment, in an absolute instant, Paul became obedient. He said, "I—I I had to trust it. I—I I couldn't unsee." amazing. Paul realized he was at the end of his rope. And all it's, it's surprising a little bit because of the instantaneousness of that. And I imagine if you and I were to see the glorifying body of Jesus, that, that same would happen to us in an instant. It would make sense. We would, it, we would fully understand all that God is, all who he is. But the reality is, for a lot of us, it's hard to process Paul's story because it takes us a long time to get at the end of our rope, doesn't it? It takes us a long time to see our sin and to feel, in one sense, unworthy or maybe even in fear of how God would see us if he was just looking at us in our sin or maybe if we were just to get a glimpse of how holy God truly is. I think in that moment, just like Isaiah, we would feel undone. It takes us a long time to reckon with the holiness of God and even the sinfulness of our own hearts. For a lot of us, it takes quite the process of God doing his own work of kind discipline to knock all the props out from underneath us. So to hear Paul's story, it seems a little unbelievable that he would get right to that point, but at the same time, we can imagine that that would be right where he was. And finally, he was able to see Jesus both as his judge and also his savior in a minute. And of course that led him to this beautiful repentance. And he said, I, I had to obey. I had to obey what I saw. In the same way, believers, I mean, we, though again, it takes us a long time and it takes us a process sometimes to see Jesus truly as he is and to see us as we are. Yet at the same time, when we do see it, oh my friend, we must repent. And I don't, and I don't say that as a Condemnation, or I don't say that even as a challenge. I'm saying you can't unsee the realities of Jesus, both as judge and your Savior, both as the one who renders sin truly sin, but also takes on your sin himself and offers you forgiveness. You can't unsee both of those realities. And when we see it, oh, my friends, we must be obedient to that Savior, the one who would love us enough to come to us and bear the burden we ourselves cannot bear. Such love and such mercy, we cannot simply disobey. You can't simply walk away. Knowing Paul's former life, you can imagine the starkness of his repentance and 
how instantaneous that was. And again, I don't pretend to think that that's instantaneous for us, yet at the same time, I think it's important to see that when we do see Jesus as he truly is, oh, my friends, we must respond. We must respond. This is exactly what I believe what Martin Luther had in mind when he was writing his Heidelberg Disputations, and he says, when our Lord commanded his people to repent, he willed that the whole life of the Christian be one of repentance. This, of course, was a one-time moment for Paul, but when Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, you can imagine him saying, like, and there's no going back. There's no turning back. I can't go back to the former way of life. I'm going to continue to remember that vision. That, that vision of a glorified Jesus must be emblazoned on his mind. And same for us as well. Again, when we see Jesus as he truly is, we can't forget what we've seen in Jesus. And that allows us to constantly be in a mode of daily repentance, even as we struggle against sin and work against the things that we're working against and fight against contentment in our circumstances or work with one another in relationships. We remember the vision of Jesus that we saw. My friend, we can't disobey that vision. We can't work against the resurrected Christ. This is why Paul would go, and, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure these were, I, I'm almost like confused as to exactly what this would have done to Paul. But I, I, I have to imagine that these words from, from Jesus, right there in front of him, must have always stuck with him. He says, uh, look at verse 14. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do, do you really want to live your life Kicking against the goats. In other words, Jesus is kindly saying, I'm going to win. You, like, like cattle, when it's like you're being stubborn, right? You have these like, go, go this way. And cattle ranchers set up these things called goats or pricks so that they can't go backwards. They can't hunker down. So they, the cattle backs up and they're either going to get pricked, which is going to push them forward, or they can just go. This is exactly what like Paul is, is realizing here. I can't defeat this Jesus. I can't defeat him. So I can obey. I can just submit my heart to the reality of the glorified Jesus, both as judge and my Savior, and I can just go, or I can spend the rest of my life kicking against the goads, and he's going to win anyway. And I'm going to wind up in his sovereign care and love anyway. And I can see how that goes. Oftentimes, don't we feel like cattle bucking up against the goats. Oh, my friend, better to just simply obey and trust our loving Heavenly Father. Better to just do that. Certainly, we are, we are cattle. We need goading often. This is what he means, and eventually in verse 20, uh, this picks up in Paul's mission, actually, to the Gentiles. He describes the gospel and seeing this heavenly vision and repenting and obeying this heavenly vision in this way. In verse 20, he declared first to those in Damascus, this is Paul talking, I declared uh, first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, but then perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Don't, don't lose sight of the heavenly vision, but keep going in repentance and allow the rest of your life to be rearranged underneath the repentance that you're experiencing. Stick, stick with activities and things that you are actually doing in your life, allow the ground of your Christian life to keep in step with the reality of your repentance. And again, all of that flows from this beautiful heavenly vision of Jesus as judge and Savior. 
Paul would continue on if you, uh, if you go down to verse uh, 21. He says, this is really the reason that the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Of course, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. Paul, again, here is referencing this movement towards Rome and kind of what he wants to do in his mission to get to Rome. And he acknowledges here, yes, in one sense, I've kind of kicked, kicked against the goads and it hasn't worked out like I've always thought, but I've had this wonderful help that comes from God. God's been sovereign in all of it. And I stand here now testifying both to small and to great, both to Jew and to Gentile, this wonderful message. And he lays out and begins to lay out some of the historical evidence related to the nature of the gospel that helps support his heavenly vision. He begins to tie the heavenly vision that he saw in real life to the realities, the historical realities of either what has happened or what is happening right now in space and in time. And it's beautiful. In one sense, this kind of becomes an apologetic for us as we simply defend our faith. Again, Paul's using some of these apologetic tools to defend his conversion story, but also, more importantly, to get the gospel message across, to actually communicate the realities of the gospel. So the first thing that he points out here in this is the prophetic witness of the gospel. Not pathetic. Not the pathetic one. That's, that's different. That's you and me. This is the prophetic witness. Again, in verse 22, I'm really, I've had the help that comes from God, and I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said had already come to. There's three things that he really mentions here, and of course there's a gazillion other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, but he does mention these three kind of umbrellas or uh, general categories for the things that were prophesied early on in the Old Testament scripture. Number one, that Christ must suffer. Talk about that. That he would be the first to rise from the dead. And number three, that he would proclaim light both to our people to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Those three things, Paul makes it very clear. These three things are found in the Old Testament writings. These things have been prophesied long ago and are just coming to fruition now. You can read them. You can go check them out. They're all true. There are supposedly, according to conservative biblical scholarship, there are around, and again, some, some guys differ, uh, over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus specifically fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. I looked at a huge list at, of these, and I was astounded. It kind of blew me away. I obviously knew that there were many things that Jesus fulfilled, but I was just reading through the list, and once it overwhelmed me at the reality of just how much was portrayed in the Old Testament scriptures, and how Jesus assumed Almost every single one of them. Certainly did every single one of them, but specifically, it works itself out. 300 over. Again, take take some, leave some. But in the hundreds, the the reality of that, I should should say the the percentage of that happening in one person fulfilling all these prophecies laid out in Old Testament, actually coming together, just you know lining up. A few of these Old Testament prophecies would be astounding, but that we have around or over 300 of them is quite overwhelming. And 
kind of even, you know, if you remember the old line from C.S. Lewis, he's, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Those are really your only options when it comes to these realities. Either these prophecies are true, and as Jesus proclaimed them to be fulfilled in himself and actually demonstrated through the authoritative and historical word of God, then we have to assume that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or we must really claim him as the one who fulfills this and name him as our Lord. But Paul really only lists three here, three that we'll cover in just a, just a little bit here. But the first is this reality that the Christ must suffer. And of course, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to understand that the, uh, any sort of Messiah would succumb to any amount of suffering here in this world just as a temporal being or as a human being. It would make sense that in some way there would be some aspect of suffering. But Paul's just not mentioning the fact that like the Messiah would eventually kind of come down with a cold every once in a while or Maybe just, you know, every once in a while, he would just kind of get a little hungry every, every now and then and have to make himself food because he is the Lord of the universe after all. No, actually, Paul is actually hinting out a very specific kind of suffering that is mentioned here. And, of course, if you go back to Acts 3, you'll pick this up in Peter's sermon. Peter laid out very specifically that the Christ, and he used this very same phrase, he must suffer. And he must suffer in particular ways. Why? In order to fulfill prophecy, but also to pay for our sins. Actually, to work out salvation, he must not only suffer generally or categorically, he must actually succumb to a particular kind of suffering. It's very important that we begin to see that suffering. You can see Jesus' overarching suffering throughout uh, a gazillion passages of Scripture related to his own humanity. He did suffer hunger. He did suffer thirst. He did tire out. But more specifically, there are soul sufferings that Jesus experienced here. And you can turn to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, where it actually talks about God himself putting Jesus to grief. God himself inflicting Jesus with the sorrow, with the grief, with the pain that he must bear for us. But more specifically, Jesus would talk not just about a general suffering from God, but a particular kind of suffering that is suffering that is actually demonstrated in a crucifixion. It's very important in Jesus' mind that we resignate that, uh, or uh, designate Jesus as the one who was crucified, the Messiah who suffered as a crucified Savior. You can turn to John 12, the back end of John 12, where Jesus actually alludes to the bronze serpent. Familiar with the story in Numbers 21, uh, Jesus connects the dots from Old Testament scriptures, and he says, "Just as the old, just as the bronze serpent serpent must be lifted up in order to save the Jews who look upon the bronze serpent, so I too must be lifted up on a cross, so that whoever looks to me, who looks to the Son of Man, might be saved." And the people had a hard time processing what does it mean that this Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus makes it very specific to be lifted up on a cross. To be lifted up in a way that actually pays for the sins of the world. Which eventually would become Paul's point, because not only did he suffer, not only did he suffer on a cross, but he suffered on a cross. And this is Paul's understanding of his own salvation theology. He must do that all for you. It's a suffering that actually isn't just general, categorical, or maybe even in one sense universal, though there are some aspects to that that are true, but that, that must happen specifically for you. 
he must atone for your sin. And he brings this up in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. For, as it is written in Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He hung on a tree for your curse. To take away your sin. Paul leaves that beautiful image of saying, he must suffer for me. Jesus fulfilled that beautiful prophecy, and he did it all for you, just to love you. And there's actual, certainly biblical, prophetic evidence of that, but as we'll see in just a little bit, there's actually historical evidence of God's love demonstrated for you. You can read it, not just in your Bible, but you can read it in actual history of humanity. Let it be known that in the history of all of humanity, in the history of this earth, there is a God who has reached down and actually shed his blood for you. Not only did he say the prophetic witness of the gospel means that Jesus must suffer, but also that Christ will rise first. He must rise first, and there's this implication here that that's not the end of all the resurrections that will ever happen. Jesus led in resurrection, but there's also more resurrection waiting to come. And the beautiful reality is that promise, prophetically speaking, is for you and for me. In one sense, it is still prophetically speaking. We are longing for the day when our resurrection is to come, at least bodily. Yet right now, we have the eternal hope that, not prophetically, at least now, we have it prophetically in the past, but it's realized now, we have been raised from the dead spiritually. We have been yet born again. Though our outer man is wasting away, our new man is being renewed every day. The Spirit himself indwells with us so that Christ is in us today. We have been raised to walk in newness of life through baptism into Christ. You are alive in Christ, no longer dead in your sins. It's beautiful. The first fruits of the resurrection to come are realized both now, but also is realized in Jesus long ago when he too himself raised from the dead, which again both has prophetic witness and also historical witness as well. Paul says this in Romans 1. Uh, this is how he begins his letter. It's really beautiful. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God in power and according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And was, uh, yeah, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. It's beautiful. The Son of God, Jesus himself, I'm writing to you about his gospel, who's actually prophetically uh, written about through the line of David and now has come in time and space and has de been declared to be the Son of God in power by virtue of his rising from the dead, who I, Paul, saw first. Beautiful. My friend, the reality of Jesus rising from the dead and really the beauty of Paul's being able to witness Jesus rising from the dead, which certainly proves in his mind the prophetic writings of old, but it also proves that one day you too will be risen from the dead bodily. You too will walk bodily in newness of life with him. And Paul is
witnesses in one sense, there's more witnesses, but Paul himself writing is certainly one of your key witnesses to the reality of that resurrection. He saw him firsthand. Beautiful. So he will suffer, he will rise first, us next, and then number three, Paul points out that Christ will save the nations. He will save the nations. See that at the very end uh, of verse 23, that he would, that Christ would proclaim light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, making his salvation in that sense uh, a universal salvation for all people, uh, bringing or putting nobody outside the circle of the reach of God's grace. Of course, this goes all the way back, and this can be traced. The Jews would have firsthand experience of this uh, in a lot of ways. Go back to Genesis 12, almost as early as it can get with the, the promise made to Abraham. He will be a blessing to the nations. Jesus himself fulfilling that here. So we see the prophetic witness of the gospel lends itself, first of all, to, to Paul's credibility. Uh, you can actually go look in the scriptures as, uh, as a Jew or someone who's even uh, curious about uh, the prophetic writings of, of the Jewish religion. You can go and track all of those and see them fulfilled in Jesus himself through his resurrection. And the resurrection actually is really the linchpin in Paul's mind of all of it being true. You can, you can really, it's like a house of cards. You take out the resurrection of the dead and the rest of it just absolutely crumbles. But if you plug in the resurrection of the dead, then it just all, in one sense, clicks in place. He must be all that he said he is if he can truly rise from the dead. He must be the savior of the world. But also then, Paul lays out this historical witness of the gospel as well. The historical witness of the gospel. In verse 24, we hear a little bit of a rebuttal against his defense. Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are absolutely out of your mind. You've lost it. And he even attributes, seems like you've learned a lot. Seems like you've learned some new things. Added a couple things to your uh, theological playbook there. And it's driven you mad now. You know too much. You've seen too much. I love Paul's defense. And let this, let this be encouraging to us who maybe even wrestle with the realities of uh, the, the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Uh, maybe you struggle apologetically to really come underneath the, the tenets of Scripture or the, the tenets of the Christian faith and really wrap your mind. First of all, it's okay to not know everything. It means you're not God. That's a beautiful thing. We don't want you to be God. You don't want yourself to be God. That's okay. Uh, but it allows God to be God in very profound ways, which is also very helpful. But I love what Paul says here in verse 25. I am not out of my mind. I'm, I'm thinking actually very clearly. Let me tell you, I am speaking true and rational words. Everything I'm telling to you is absolutely real. It's true. And it has an explanation for everything I say. Absolutely rational. You can think through it. You can logically put it together. It makes sense. Now we'll see that even that's not enough for some folks. It's not enough. It certainly isn't enough even still today for a lot of folks in this age. For it to be true and rational isn't enough. And we know that theologically true, to, to be true. We, we saw that in the first half of this sermon, right? Or last week's sermon. The spiritual realities of the gospel have to come about in the life of a person. In other words, if they don't have spiritual illumination, 
if they cannot see by virtue of the Spirit opening their eyes to see Jesus as he truly is, then they will remain in darkness, and there's no amount of truth, and there's no amount of rationalization that will ever bring that to light in their mind. But Paul is bringing a defense to his own understanding of the gospel. He says, but if you do see it clearly, let me tell you something. It is absolutely true, undeniably true, and also very rational. Let it be known that in Paul's mind and the witness of Scripture, these things actually do play out in our experience as well. We can point to the realities of truth, which does sometimes seem subjective, right? As we lay out truth, it can often feel subjective. But we can point to concrete and objective realities that also are very, very explainable according to certainly prophetic writings, but also to history as well. And say, no, these things are absolutely able to be thought through. A lot of times we just don't want to see it because our sin gets in the way. There's something not related to the truthfulness or the rationalization of these things to where we would have to give up our life. Or we would have to surrender parts of ourselves that we're content to just hold, hold, hold close. There's something else. There's some other roadblock in the way. Paul goes on, what about this is true and rational in Paul's mind? Verse 26, he says very clearly, the king knows all about this stuff. Ask him. He's right there. Ask him. King, you know this stuff. You've seen it. You've seen it with your own eyes. What sort of things has he seen? Well, I, I love this. All, all that I'm talking to you about, that he must suffer, that he must rise from the dead, and that it's going to be a witness to all nations, none of this has happened in a corner. I love, I love, that's like my favorite line in this text. The king will know that none of this has actually happened in like the back room. This has happened in like plain sight. This has happened where people see it, and there are witnesses, and there are historians logging this stuff. And then, boom, now there's a church, and how do you explain that? And how do you explain my story? As Paul raises his hand. I, I didn't sign up for any of this, Paul would say. This wasn't, this wasn't my concoction. I was on my way to kill people. Jesus knocked me off my horse. Where I was going. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Well, I know that you believe. Paul here pins Agrippa. This is a little... Uh, this points a little bit to the wittiness of Paul, but also certainly we can point to just the reality of uh, the Spirit working through Paul. He pins Agrippa, maybe even uses his own politicism against Agrippa. Of course, Agrippa's not going to say at this moment, like, well, no, I don't, I don't believe, I don't believe the prophets. He's, he's got the Jews on his side. He's not going to upset the Jews. He's not going to say, no, I don't believe their stuff. Of course he believes their stuff. Well, then if he believes all of the writings and the prophets, then Paul in one sense has won the argument because it demonstrates very clearly that this Jesus truly is the Messiah based on his suffering, his resurrection, and then, of course, the witness to the entire world. And the reality is, Paul wins the argument because what has happened in real time and space is actually real. You can't unsee it. It hasn't happened in a back room. We all see it, which is why King Agrippa is dealing with the stuff he's dealing with. You see it. You know about it. You deal with this stuff every day. You deal with this battle between the Jews and also this Christian church that's booming and growing and trying to figure out what to do with them. You see it. Just ask him. You're not going to deny that, are you? amazing. The stuff that Paul relates to as real, certainly we believe in the miraculous. Certainly we believe that Jesus' uh, Jesus's resurrection was a truly spiritual event. That's not to say that like we can fully explain everything. Again, we're, we're not God. But everything that has happened 
is rational in the sense that we can prove it. Via, it hasn't been happening, happening in a back room. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there are over 500 eyewitnesses to the res resurrection of Jesus. That, that's not backroom alley stuff. That is in full plain view. We have people like Josephus or uh, Pliny the Elder who actually records in history the realities of this resurrected Jesus and the growth of the early Christian church and how even they met on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection that they saw. We have these actually recorded. Again, this didn't happen in a back room. And though it's miraculous, in one sense it's unexplainable, we can rationalize it and see, oh, this is this is clearly happening. This is, this is why this stuff exists. Again, it's explainable in the sense that we have historical evidence, and Paul's conversion certainly is a huge part of that. Paul stands as this explanation of the reality of the resurrection. Agrippa answered, this, this is kind of an amazing, uh, I, don't, I don't prefer this translation, but Agrippa's answer is pretty remarkable. Agrippa said to Paul in verse 28, in short time, you would have me to play the Christian? You would have me, in one sense, like, defend you as the Christian in the room? And Paul's like, oh, yeah, yeah, actually. I don't really think it's uh, something you can avoid doing. I presented to you, in one sense, my heavenly vision. I've laid out the realities of Jesus from a prophetic point of view, but also a historic point of view. Oh, and also the spiritual point of view as well. You would have me play the Christian, Agrippa asks. It's like, I'm not interested in doing that. Paul's like, well, whether short or long, I would have you to know that I want you to hear everything I'm saying to you and be as I am. I mean, except for the stuff in jail part. That's not fun. But other than that, all of you. I'd love for you to hear Paul wanted everyone to experience what he had experienced. And what was that? It was a death and a resurrection. Paul, Paul stands in this place, and in Scripture, in one sense, he, he stands in this place and says, I wish you guys would all know what it means to be killed in Jesus and live again. It's better than anything else. He's saying it's nothing else can compare to that reality. Who Jesus is in his glory. Jesus as judge of the universe, but also Jesus as the one who takes away sin. I want you to know that. I want you to, I want you to see him. I want you, to, I want you to become obedient to that heavenly vision. I want you to repent of your own life and trust the life of the resurrected Christ. I want you to lean into the realities of Jesus' miraculous love for you. And you can see it in plain sight. But it's going to take a little bit more than that. You're going to need a spiritual sight to be able to see that. You're going to, you're going to need the scales to fall off your eyes. You're going to need to see Jesus truly as he is. And my friend, there's no greater way to look at Jesus than to see Jesus on a cross. And if you want to know who is Jesus, what's the heart of Jesus, or if you want to know who is God, Jesus made it very clear, if you see me, you've seen the Father. You've seen all that you need to see in me. Well, what does Jesus have to show you? His wounds. Himself on a cross. Your forgiveness. As Paul would say last week, you have a spot in eternal history, eternal, because of Jesus. My friend, what is there, what is there left for you to think through? Some of you have already processed that. Most of you have. But Paul would say, 
to, to bring our practices and to bring our life in step with our repentance. In one sense, to continue on repenting according to the heavenly vision. To continue on in obedience of the heavenly vision that we've seen in Jesus. To continue to walk with him, whatever the cost. I know it costs you a lot on the front end to trust Jesus. But keep in step with the repentance. Whatever it takes even here today. Whatever sin you feel like is in the way. Whatever idol you feel like you have to have. Oh my friend. Keep in step with the repentance according to the heavenly vision. Don't take your eyes off Jesus, glorified, resurrected, offered for you, shed for you as your substitute, but also your eternal hope. Don't unsee that. Keep in step. Keep walking. Keep going. And certainly you have ample prophetic and historical reasons to trust this way. So may you do so spiritually as well. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would keep us in step with the repentance you've already given us. And Father, who knows, maybe there is someone here tonight who, like Paul, has yet to come to the end of their rope. Father, I do pray that you would bring them. What a blessed spot to be at the end of your rope, Father. Oftentimes, that's, not oftentimes, most times, that's where your office is. That's where you hang out. That's where you love to be. You are someone who loves to befriend sinners. So, Father, I pray. I pray that you would continually bring us to the end of ourselves. Allow, it, allow us to see our sin as it truly is. But then also, maybe even more importantly, allow us to see Jesus as he is. Allow us to see his heart of love. Allow us to see his heart of grace and mercy extended to us. Allow us to see the work of kind justice. <clears throat> That he took all of our punishment, all of our guilt, and all of our shame upon himself so that we might walk free. Father, I do pray that at the end of our rope, we keep in step with the repentance of the Jesus that we have seen and in many ways would continue to give us the blessed fruit of our salvation. It is a wonderful thing to be saved to the uttermost in Jesus. And part of that wonderful experience is even to be free here to some degree, even from our daily strappings with sin, our wrestlings with sin, to walk in freedom from sin here and now. Father, I pray that you would grant that to your people. That they would continue on with unnecessary anxiety about tomorrow, or, uh, or comparing themselves with one another, or coveting one another's stuff, or anger, or frustration at one another. But I pray that we might walk free in love and compassion and gentleness. Father, keep us in step with what we've seen in Jesus. Which means, Father, I pray that you would continue to give us Jesus.
provides a perfect salvation. Come on to me.